When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Psychology, a podcast channel to the New Books Network. I'm Oed Fadida, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dan Klerman and Wadita Nisker about their new book, Let's Talk, an Essential Guide to Skillful Communication. Let's Talk is a comprehensive approach to one-on-one communication grounded in psychology, sociology, and Buddhist thought. The book goes through theory, skills, and offers practical applications to help the reader address challenging topics with less stress and anxiety, feel more confident expressing themselves, understand others more easily, and much more. About our guests, Morita Nisker is a licensed marriage family therapist, coach, and trainer. She works with couples and individuals in her private practice in Oakland, California. A strong advocate of lifelong learning, she's led women's communication training groups for more than 35 years. She also offers training and coaching to private, public, government, and nonprofit organizations. You can contact her at www.letstalkmethod.com. Com. Uh, Dan Clerman is a coach, trainer, and professor. Over the past 30 years, he has provided communication training and coaching to individuals and organizations in the private, public, government, and nonprofit sectors. He's the faculty of the psychology in the Edward S. Agino School of Business at Golden Gate University in San Francisco. He teaches courses of team dynamic, conflict resolution, and coaching, emphasizing the interplay of critical thinking and communication. He also teaches business communication at UC Berkeley Extension. It's amazing to have both of you with me today, and I wanted to, I'm so glad that you guys are uh, are with us. The book is really incredible. Um, how are you guys doing? Doing pretty good. We're excited to be talking with you. Amazing. So can you tell us a little bit about what brought you guys to write a book about communication? So many people asked us if there was a book on the material that we were teaching them and bringing to them. And uh, that happened a lot over the last few years. And finally, we just decided, I think it's time, let's do it. (laughs) Right, there were a lot of requests. We've been teaching together for 35 years, a lot of requests, and there was no book that captured what we do. So we ended up writing it. (laughs) And the pandemic, the pandemic, in a way, helped 
there wasn't there weren't so many distractions to go out into the world for right for sure for sure so everyone had a COVID hobby and you guys wrote the bible and communication <laughs> <laughs> that's it that was it <laughs> so so there's so much to to discuss in the book and I, I don't know if we're going to you know get to everything but hopefully we'll give the audience a little tasting um so you so you start off by explaining how the two primary aspects of interpersonal communication is what you talk about, which is content, and how you talk about it, which is the process. So there's content aspects and process aspects. So can you give us a little bit, uh, an overview on what is the content, what is the process aspects? Sure. So communication, you could say, has those two elements. There are others, of course. Uh, the content is what we talk about. And that's prevalent. There are so many things that we talk about. So content is almost endless. Process is how we talk about the content. And from our perspective, that's uh, more limited. There are fewer principles, and yet the process elements have a significant effect on the quality of the content. In some ways, the process element is less visible. People tend to focus on the content. The content is what's juicy. And I find people want to go where the juicy part is, which I can understand that. And yet the process is so crucial if it's overlooked. Oftentimes important conversations don't work out as desired. And the process, um, for example, includes, Moody Taylor will discuss this, when to talk and when to listen. That's such a simple thing. And yet, and, and in most conversations, it doesn't matter how much we're paying attention to that, but in significant or consequential conversations, uh, deciding whether to talk or whether to listen can make a lot of difference in the quality of the content. Sometimes people try to talk about something that's difficult and they can't, and they're only paying attention to the content. And what happens is they start to make assumptions about incompatibility rather than knowing that if they looked at the process that they were using, that maybe one person was doing all the talking, yeah. <laughs> for example. This is particularly the case with couples, where if someone's used to talking more than listening, or both people are, they can have this sense of talking at each other and neither one developing a lot of mutual understanding. And that's a simple process communication issue to figure out where there needs to be more listening or where there needs to be more talking. For example, when I started really getting into this communication work, I realized that there was an uneven balance between how much I talked and how much I listened. I was a lot more comfortable listening as, as many women are. Mm -hmm. And I could sit back and kind of, you know, be safe. And when I started paying attention, I started to push myself out there to, to say more. And uh, I found that was a lot more satisfying after a while, because at least the people that I was talking with, if they wanted to, they could take in what it was I wanted in a situation and be responsive. When I was mostly listening, they didn't know where I was and what I wanted. And even if they wanted to help me out, it was it was more difficult. Mm. Oh, for sure. That's that's so important. And I, I think I think that 
everyone assumes that because as you say, you say this in the book that we talk all the time, everyone talks all the time. And we assume that we're just because we do it all the time that we're good at it, or that we don't need really need to practice it. And as you, I think everyone has the experience, especially with Thanksgiving, you know, we think we know how to talk, and then we we leave uh, with, <laughs> with the exploded conversations and broken families. And we're like, oh, actually, maybe we should work on this. Uh, so, <laughs> so you touch on on foundations, on the principles and, and the skills um, of, of communication. And they seem obvious at first, but there's things that you really need to practice. So some of these skills that you bring up include loop communication, as you brought up, knowing when to talk and when to listen, flooding versus chunking. So can you give us a little bit of an overview on those skills? Sure. So loop communication, or what people think of as two-way communication, is in contrast to one-way communication. And one-way communication is where I'm talking to you, and I'm not paying that much attention to how you're responding or how you're signaling me. Um, in terms of your responses to what I'm saying, you you know, for example, you might be nodding your head and smiling, and that's a nonverbal signal that you're maybe taking things in, or you might have raised eyebrows, or you start to open your mouth to begin to try to get into the conversation, but I just keep on going and ignore that response. So that's in contrast to two-way or what we call loop communication, where I'm being attentive to how what I say is affecting you and your signals verbally and non-verbally, and then taking that into account in the next thing that I say to you so that we're mutually affecting each other. Maybe it's time for me to stop talking and start listening because you start to lean forward and open your mouth. So I'm really being responsive to what's happening in this loop. And together, we can build a, a mutual understanding through loop communication. And you might think this is obvious. It is obvious. And yet, a lot of what's modeled to us in the media are forms of one-way communication. People sort of waiting to get their sound bites in. And, and then you'll you know, say, well, I'm, I'm finished. That's all. And it's not checking to how that what they said affects someone else. Mm. So it's sort of that, that dance of communication. Mm -hmm. yes. The back and forthness. The yeah. improvisation. It's an improvisation. If one person does all the talking, it becomes a monologue. Right. Or if, if that's all the two people do, it could be a parallel monologue. Mm. Do, do you think this is um, sort of the the reason for the popularity of we're seeing these three-hour podcasts that people are falling in love with? and. Mm -hmm. Maybe this because people are longing for normal communication. Well, podcasts have introduced back into the larger public um, conversation because <laughs> you can have an extended conversation on a podcast and you can get to some of the uh, depths of conversation through the back and forthness uh, in podcasts. So I, in some ways, it's a, a welcome thing to bring back into society. Mm. And there's another aspect to uh, another foundational principle that along with one-way communication, people tend to flood sometimes as opposed to chunk their information. Flooding is where you're talking in pages and pages, and chunking is where you pause in the as you say something and you pay attention to how the other person is responding and you make adjustments based on that. 
So it's not that flooding necessarily has a negative intention. I I grew up in a, a family where there was a lot more flooding than chunking and communication, and that became a style. It's just sometimes that's just what you're you're surrounded by. That's what's modeled to you, and and so you adapt it. Mm-hmm. For sure, for sure. Um, I think there's also, you know, there's it's not only the flooding. There's an element of not only just throwing so much content at the other person so you uh you just um don't let, give any space for the other person to exist but also emotionally sometimes you just throw so much of the person it's just too much <laughs> too much yeah, yeah. well and it's, it's easy to become enthusiastic about what you're saying yeah <laughs> and if you're not paying attention to how the other person is reacting you keep going but the, the i think that's a good point that if the other person is being is listening to content that's too emotionally charged and goes on for too long that by seeing how that's affecting this person you can modulate what you're saying you can stop and take a breath let them regroup so that they don't feel overwhelmed and have a better chance at listening to you if they want to mm-hmm. um so so one of the most important skills is in communication is not only the talking, but it's the listening parts. Um, and we you talk in the book about different types of listening. It's not obvious that just listening is, you know, there's different types. And the golden standard is reflective listening. So can you describe a little bit what is reflective listening? Sure. So reflective listening <laughs> Very simply, it's just listening to understand. It's it's not listening to agree or disagree or send another response at the time that you're using it. You later can, of course. It's also not preparing your answer while you're listening to the other person. Not predominantly. Anyhow, it's very tempting. So it's not to say that while you're listening uh, reflectively, your own comments, evaluations, et cetera, won't arise, they probably will. It's just that you notice that, put them to one side and come back on purely listening to understand. And in this way, it's almost a um, a meditative act because you're just focusing on trying to understand, which is a more neutral kind of state of mind. And if something else comes up for you, you just notice it and come back to just trying to understand what you're hearing. Hmm. Which, as you said, is, you know, the basis of meditation is being aware of the thoughts that come in, but not allowing them to take over. Just being, exactly. being, being right. present, seeing what the other person is, ta- is saying, and then re- responding based off of that. Uh, exactly. Uh, so if possible, I don't want to put you on the spot, but would it be possible to maybe see a little demo of reflective listening between you two? Sure. We we can do that. We can do that, or we can do that by asking you to to share something. It doesn't have to be, and we'll reflectively listen to you, so you get to see what it feels like. Yeah, you could share something that um, you've been thinking about in in regards to communication of the book or whatever, and we'll just reflectively listen. And one of the things about reflecting is, you don't really need to get it right. You don't have to be a hundred percent accurate. The speaker will correct or add on or modify and you reflect the corrections and additions so what the listener or person reflecting does is put in their own words what they're understanding 
it's not a verbatim thing which shows that you have a good memory. Mm. Rather, you're translating it into your own vocabulary and feeding it back to the, the person who's speaking. Right. And and before we start, but I think you write in the book about that. It's not a police report. It's not... Uh... Uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Did we say that? <laughs> and it's sort of what you talk about, reflective listening. It's not only making the person feel heard, but it's also you can build upon it because it lets the other person, it helps them understand what they're trying to say. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Because often we discover what we want to say as we're saying it. Mm. Right. To, to uh, articulate is to define a direction. And when you hear it in, in somebody else's words, it helps you even more to clarify what you're saying. Right. Okay, so let's try this. So I'm going to talk about a recent trip. I just got back from, from a recent trip. Uh, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, so in the past uh, two weeks, I spent time in visiting friends in New York, in Boston. And I'm from Miami, so it's a, it's a lot of fun to get out and get to the cold and experience that. And it's nice also to be back in Miami. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things that I realized, what I what I saw was how beautiful America is. There's such beautiful architecture and these cities are so old. So you get to see beautiful old architecture. Mm -hmm. So a kind of a surprising element in this trip you took was how much you appreciated the old architecture in New York in particular, and uh, how lovely, how it opened up your ability to appreciate the part of the beauty of this country. Yes, totally. And, and it was inspiring. It has an effect on you that you want to study and you want to engage with life in a more full capacity when things are beautiful around you. So it opened you up in ways that you hadn't expected. Mm-hmm. And on that, it was also it was also a call to action to bring that forward to today. Mm. So, so you the a residue of the trip was it activated your desire to learn something new or to keep learning, and you realized you could apply that to this conversation. We can yeah. stop anything. So that's a little bit of reflecting. I feel how, how was that for you? That was great. <laughs> how so? Number one, as we spoke about, it confirms that someone else can understand your perspective. And I really appreciated how you framed it, made it put it in a new perspective, which is nice. Hearing our words rather than us repeating your words. Yes, exactly. Seemed to make a difference. Exactly. Um, so moving forward, uh, we speak about, you speak in the book about positive intention. So can you touch a little bit about positive intention? Sure. So positive intentions are often um, part of our messages, and they re they say whether explicitly or implicitly uh, what you want, what you'd prefer, something you desire. So, for example, just even the simplest positive intention in our conversation is wanting to be understood. However, positive intentions could be wanting to go get a glass of water, wanting to make sure you're on time for a meeting, uh, wanting to take a walk later. Or the message that you were sending, Ohan, maybe your positive intention was something like marking this experience of inspiration 
so that you remember that and, and include it in your life in some way. Mm -hmm. So the, these positive intentions are, accompany our conversations. And when you're uh, speaking, you can include them to let the other person know a path or a direction you want to take. Sometimes people leave them out or they state them in the negative, which doesn't move things ahead. Negative intentions often say what you don't want, which can be important. They sort of set boundaries. It's just that they don't provide the next step, the next place forward. So when you're reflectively listening, for example, you can reflect someone's positive intention, as Mudita just did. She reflected your implicit positive intention. It, it, it wasn't interpreting. It was just following up on something you'd said, which implied that kind of positive intention. Hmm. And and if it was incorrect, hopefully you would you would have corrected me, and I would have acknowledged the correction. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So positive intention seems to be providing a clear direction and a clear positive vision forward instead of you know always keeping defending or 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 what not to do right it keeps the it it suggests a a direction a possibility negative intentions just sort of stop right 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 just like uh in a way it's like in behavioral psychology it, if you say to say you're training your dog and you say to your dog, don't do that. And you get upset with the dog and punish the dog somehow. The dog doesn't learn anything new. But if the dog does the behavior that you're looking for, you give it the good dog and give it all the positive reinforcement you can because the dog can learn from being acknowledged for something good. But mm. can't really learn it. You can stop a negative behavior, but you don't really teach new behavior with a negative intention. Mm. The positive intentions, in a way, lead to the new behavior. Mm -hmm. Right. You're showing it's it's collaborative. It's showing that you can be part, a partner in this, whatever journey we're going to take together. Especially mm -hmm. if you, you as a listener oh, and as a speaker are, are willing to reflect other people's positive intentions, but also to state your own. Yes, you can... You can definitely collaborate, and you see this with good um, conflict resolution skills. People look for the goals and the directions forward uh, and then can acknowledge those with each other mm. and try to find overlapping common ground. Right. Overlapping positive intentions. That really helps. Right, right. And I'm going to tie this in. Tell me if if this could be tied into this idea that you talk about framing, where when we enter into conversation and engage in conversation, it's it's you want to frame the conversation, what you're about to engage in, so that the other person knows, okay, where, what, are we, what, what are we doing over here now? Yes. Right. Can you talk a little bit about how to frame or what is framing? A frame usually is at the beginning of your message. A frame highlights out of the many things that we could talk about, I'd like to focus here. So a frame is often a short uh, statement 
it's similar in a way to a positive intention, but it's more about the overall direction or purpose for the conversation itself. So a frame could be, I'd like to talk about something we discussed earlier where I didn't have a complete understanding and I'd like to pick up on that and fill it in further. Mm. Or I'd like to discuss uh, a delicate subject for us around um, household chores. Is this a good time to talk about that <laughs> so that we can coordinate better? So those just alert the other person to a potential difficulty or misunderstanding that might have occurred. Um, you can have frames for particularly challenging conversations or touchy conversations just to show the other person you're trying to be sensitive to that and you and you would the purpose of the conversation is to move in that direction so it's a in a way it's an invitation you you avoid saying the message itself and using red flag words you try to give an invitational frame so that the person will stay with you and hear you out Mm. A lot of people start their frames with something negative. Like, I want to tell you what, what a hard time I've been having with the way you're keeping a house or right. something. I want to tell you, I, I, I want to talk about a problem I'm having with you. <laughs> that, right. yeah, that, that's, that's not, not that. invitational. Right. You're already torpedoing any chances of positive communication. <laughs> you vilified yeah. the person on the start. That's right. You could say instead something like, uh, I'd like to... I've been thinking about something for a while and I'm hoping to talk to you about it to keep the an easy flow between us. Is this a good time? Right, right. And those frames really change the entire, even if the content is exactly the same, but completely yes. changes the dynamics. That's a good point, I think. Yes, that's right. A good frame, an effective frame can cast a light on the upcoming conversation that allows the other person to get a sense of your intention very early on. Positive intention. Your yeah. positive intention early on. And that acts as a kind of filter for what you're going to say next. A hundred percent. It also, as you said, even just very practically, the question of, is this now a good time to have this conversation? Because there's many conversations, very difficult conversations we need to have. Like, I, I think you brought it up on um, with, uh, couples and finance. And we we always, we have con these conversations, you know, right when we're leaving the house, when we're stressed and late <laughs> business. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> so the frame is also establishing the conversation, but also seeing if this is a good time. Yes. Yes, you're bringing up an important point, which is timeliness being aware of whether it is a good time or not is an important uh, thing to recognize. Because mm, you want to you wanna get, I guess you could call it buy-in, to use a business phrase, um, for the conversation. And the frame checks that out initially. Because someone might, you might have a wonderful frame and for a, maybe a challenging conversation. And the other person may say, I do want to talk about that. This is not a good time. So you, you're getting a, okay, then let's reschedule. Let's schedule for a time that would work. And then right. they move on. Right. And I think this ties into, there's an assumption that we have that I, if I explain something or if I try to communicate something and I don't get a, a correct, a good response, then the first time I need to do it again. And the second time, if I didn't do it, if, if it still didn't go through, then the other person is malicious. 
is bad or is there's something wrong with the person <laughs> and and i think that assumption removing the maliciousness of okay maybe we need to work on framing on the on the skills on the tools instead of automatically assuming the other person is terrible so maybe you guys can touch on that as well sure sure well i, I think you bring up a key point about making assumptions about what's going on with the other person I mean, if you you can have a very skillfully crafted frame and someone still might give you pushback and then you'd use the process communication skill of knowing you got to stop talking, start listening, and maybe you'll do some reflective listening to find out what the objection is the other person has so that you know how to address it when you do talk again. So you can see right away the communication skills start to come in place for that. And normally... The person who has the problem is the one that speaks. And the person who doesn't have a problem is the one who listens and reflects. Mm. That's that's I that's the ideal scenario. Now, a lot of times when some person one person has a problem, the other person didn't have a problem, but when they hear how the problem is stated, they immediately have a problem, even though it wasn't their problem and they didn't have a problem. So that's a whole nother aspect, which I don't think I'm going to go very far on. But uh, <laughs> they have they get entangled. Sometimes we have a, a what we a, we call a disruptor in the initial chapter of the book. We talk about disruptors, and people can become inadvertently entangled. Mm -hmm. You know, it's going to start out helping you being a sounding board for your problem. And then all of a sudden I'm entangled and, and I'm reactive and I can't listen to you anymore because I, I have a problem. Right. So, right. We, we quickly spiral out and our emotions get the best of us, which happens to everyone. Yes. Yes. That's right. That's right. And it's, it's helpful to recognize that and to decide, well, wait a minute, maybe we should take a break for a few minutes and just I can get calmed down I'll be more ready to listen again or to have the conversation mm. so it's funny that they that you touch on that because again the these seem so obvious and then I actually that exact one I read and I'm like oh I'm so stupid like I, I sometimes I don't have to finish a conversation I don't like if I'm getting too out of control we can actually pause like no one's forcing us to fight right now uh, yes, right. That's right. That's you can. Good. That's a good realization. Yes. A good and sense of useful. Yes. It's uh it's so like certain things are so simple, but you need to tell them to you need to speak them out. Um it actually reminded me there's uh there's a popular show, uh, How I Met Your Mother, and the couple over there, so they have a rule that whenever they feel that the conversation is getting too heated, they call pause. And they continue at a different time, so that th this uh, this rule reminds me of that. Uh, <laughs> that uh, yeah, that could be a he healthy strategy for some people. Mm -hmm. Just to just to uh, make sure that if you do call a pause or a, a timeout, that you acknowledge that you do want to get back to the conversation and set a time for it. Otherwise, it could seem it could be anxiety provoking for people like. When will we ever get to discuss Yeah, this? you're always putting me off. Right, because you don't want to avoid. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Um, so, so you talk about, so aside from the book being based on psychology and sociology, there's a clear Buddhist thinking mm -hmm. that the book is grounded on. 
Um, so can you talk a little bit about what is um, what is Buddhist about the the the, the book? Sure. As we we draw on Buddhism and we also draw on other philosophies like Taoism and cybernetics and systems theory, although that's much more in the background. So, for example, in Buddhism, a key recognition is the impermanence of things, that nothing lasts. And yet, the way we use language sometimes conveys the sense that things do have a permanency. And, and so we recommend using provisional language, that is, language that acknowledges the possibility of change. So you can hear this most distinctly when people say, you always forget my birthday. <laughs> I didn't forget it two years ago, I remembered. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm always taking out the garbage. Right. You know? Well, I took it out two weeks ago, right? So, right. so these more absolute kinds of statements lack their non-provisional language. They, they lack the acknowledgement that things could be changing. Even to characterize oneself as, uh, you know, I'm a shy person or something like that. It, rather than, it, at certain parties I go to, I have a hard time talking with people. It's much more specific. Whereas if I start to think I'm always this way, then that can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. So there's another, oh, go ahead, sorry. This, this, another this thing, so, so what you're saying is, is that our language reflects the way we see the world. And that ties into the, this is where you bring in the the philosophy of, it's one and the same at some point. It influences so much of how we perceive ourselves in the world that we pay sh pretty strongly attention to the language you use in that it shapes our responsiveness and our, our uh, way of perceiving ourselves and others in conversations. Mm -hmm. and it's one is one way to evoke uh, changes is to language things differently. If I start thinking that, well, sometimes I'm a shy person, especially when I don't know many people at a party. And I'm thinking, but there are other times I'm noticing there are other times when I do feel more comfortable mm. when I'm in a better place or I know somebody. So I stop thinking of myself as a shy person. And that influences my decision to go to that gathering or stay home. And mm. I I stop thinking, well, I'm a shy person. If I go, I'll have a bad time and start thinking more provisionally. Like I could have a bad time, but sometimes I have a good time. And it just opens up a whole new possibility right. by paying attention to language use. Right. <clears throat> it seems like almost the the working on our communication takes us to it's a it's it's a it's a heavy heavy self-insight work it's a lot of it's a psychology yeah. with yourself yes yes i think i'd say so yes since it we, we swim in this ocean of our self-talk communication and talk with others so why not pay attention to the language and and notice how it influences us along the way Right. There's, an, there's another element I think Muditos could connect this to, which is the Buddhist concept of right speech. Oh, right. Yes. In that concept, there are two basic elements. One is telling the truth, and two is having your speech be useful. 
Mm. Asking yourself when you're going to say something, is what I'm going to say useful? Is what I'm going to say true? And yeah. go ahead. No, no. Continue, please. <laughs> okay. Uh, so useful or true? It might be that you're thinking, well, isn't that stifling what I want to say if I run it through that grid and then I censor myself? Shouldn't I just, quote, let it all hang out, unquote? Or I'm not being truthful if I don't say everything. Some people uh, believe that. But in the right speech side of things, we have many more thoughts than we can articulate anyhow. We're always selecting what we're going to say. And not necessarily consciousness, consciously. So if I think about what I'm going to say and is it truthful or is it useful, I will select what I'm going to say based on those principles rather than randomly, especially in consequential conversations. That's a, a big thing is to notice not only is it true, but is it useful to talk about this right now? Right. Right. And yeah, it's it's a beautiful point that's for for that you that you bring up about, you know, certain people think that they need to say everything because, you know, if I had the thought, then clearly I need to say it because clearly it's true. And it's well, we select all the time. We always engage in, in selection. So why not select for utility and peace? Exactly. Yeah. Well put. Yeah. Very well. Which is interesting that um uh you know, biblically, a lot of times when they talk about truth, the next word is always peace. It's always truth and peace. It's not enough just to have truth and it's not enough just to have peace. You need to have both, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they do seem to go together. You hope. <laughs> you hope. Well, it's an aspiration. Yeah, right, aspiration. It's an aspiration to connect those two qualities together and embody that in speech. Mm -hmm. There's There's another element that's very clearly... I think Buddhist is the separation between your emotions and or your thoughts and yourself and which is essential in communication because not everything that comes up you have to embody and you can sit there and communicate without you being taken over by your anger or your sadness or whatever you're feeling maybe you want to can you please address that yes uh, Sometimes um, we have a chapter on uh, cognitive distortions in a self-talk, and that that sometimes falls under the category of emotional reasoning. Which, if I feel, if it, I feel this true. about this thought, then it must be true, <laughs> and that's pretty easy leap for people to make because there's a lot of feeling about some thinking, then that proves that it's so. Furthermore, people often regard feelings as more real and authentic than th thoughts. Thoughts mm. get a kind of second-class citizenship <laughs> compared to feelings. However, we view them as, as um, mutually reinforcing each other. They're mutually interdependent. Your thinking affects your feeling. Your feeling affects your thinking. So yeah. it's useful to look at the way that you link them together. Interesting. Interesting. So giving equal footing for both and still having that self that chooses, you know, is discerning about this. So as you notice, probably from the background of the book, we, we favor critical thinking a lot. That is thinking about our thinking and our feelings, of course. Uh, it's sometimes referred to as metacognition. 
and that ability to be discerning about your thoughts and feelings and to consider, is it useful to say this now? Or is this feeling going well beyond what I'm thinking? Is it starting to dominate how I'm thinking? These are all elements of critical thinking skills, which we think communication, practicing communication skills can foster. For sure. For sure. And it's it's interesting that in, in therapy, that is the what what's worked on. The therapist helps you sometimes uh, work on metacognition and goes through the, your thoughts and feelings and helps you discern. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Right. Yes, that element of discernment it, from a spiritual side is often connected with wisdom. Right. The ability to, to recognize situations, to know what's enough to say or too much to say or an appropriate thing to say. Those are factors of wisdom as well. Mm-hmm. So the question is, why is it so difficult for us to to have conversation and especially difficult conversation with others who disagree with us? Why is it so difficult to sit with uh, with other perspectives? Well, I th- there's a lot of reasons, of course. Um, one is that it's easy to become identified with my point of view so that I tend to think of my beliefs or perspectives as not just something I think, but who I am. Mm. And so if you disagree with my perspective, then you are disagreeing with me personally. Negating who you are. Negating who I am, my identity in some way. And it's pretty easy to get polarized around that. Mm. So it's almost an attack on self when someone disagrees with me. Can be that if I become overly identified with my beliefs, uh, that is, I I don't see them as their beliefs, their ideas I have about things. They're not necessarily going to be agreed upon by everybody because people have different conditioning and different history and and many different perspectives. Um, Yeah, it's very easy to get polarized. I guess it's a kind of inadvertent entanglement. Yes, Yes. So that's one way we see people becoming, um, well, having conflict in conversations and becoming polarized. And the other thing is it, well, go ahead. You're gonna say well, I was just going to say that uh, it, with reflective listening, because you're reflecting back what you're understanding, what you're hearing, you kind of avoid the problem of disagreeing. Disagreeing is not reflective listening. It's, speaking it's being the speaker again Mm. so if you're reflectively listening you're not going to disagree because you're not going to send your own message at the time that you're reflectively listening you're just listening purely to understand before you disagree so that goes a long way to as an antidote to immediately going into agreement or disagreement becoming reactive if you have that pause for reflecting that can give you space to consider what somebody's saying more fully. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, very. very this is so this is so enjoyable. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> well, what are you noticing? What's yeah. what is happening for you? What's it working? It's just so again because there's there's so much we we engage in so much communication and it's so important to know how to how to do this so you can you can really understand someone else's worldview and you can actually open up and have 
uh, uh, growth from communication. Yes. Yes. Right. Right. Be 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 touched by other people's perspectives. Right. Be affected by them. Yeah. Right. To be moved. To be inspired. It's kind right. of a hopeful feeling. Yes. Yes. It's real. It's real connection with people. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Huh. Well, communication can create that sense of uh, interconnectedness that's very strong, and also a kind of intimacy in a way with people, mm-hmm. particularly people you're, you know, friends with and close to. That that depth of understanding that sometimes uh, goes along with that quality of intimacy. I think communication skills can engender that too. Mm-hmm. There's also something very profound about when you have conversation with someone who does not see you as your ideas, then there's something very um, validating about your existence, that it's not just about my position. And then it relieves the pressure of having to have correct positions. Because if I can be an idiot, meaning if I can sort of stumble around with people who I who are with me, and I'm not judged based off of my positions, there's something very relieving about that. Mm. Allows you to be human. Exactly, exactly. And so Murita was just reflecting something that she thought was implicit in what you were saying. Yes, yes. That's an example of reflecting something that's implicit. Mm. <laughs> that's how I understood it. That's yes. how I understood what you were saying. Yes, it's true. It's very true. Um, so it's, what's really, really wonderful about your book is that it's not only theory, but there's also a lot of practice and, and tech and, and application. And you talk about applications with relationships, with spousal, with children, with self-talk. Um, so maybe we can jump into how we can apply these skills in relationship. Sure. Specific uh, er- question or area. So, so you speak about in relationship, you speak about content goal versus relationship goals. So maybe you can speak about the, that distinction. So content goals are the tangible, obvious goal. Like I want you to um, take out the trash on Tuesday. <laughs> That's a content goal. I want you to pick up the kids at three o'clock rather than 3.15. Those are content goals. Relationship goals are more oriented to the type of interdependence we want to have with each other. How is it we want to view our relationship with each other? Content goals are often quite explicit. They're the the first thing that people gravitate to, especially as conflict is looming. And relationship goals can be more in the background, although not always. However, with couples, because they're so interdependent with each other, it's important to keep both goals in mind in conversations. I'd like to talk about a a touchy issue that we have around our finances and really like to stay in a harmonious place as much as possible as we have this conversation. Mm -hmm. Content goal, relationship goal. Right. And, and, And I think this ties into the the surprise I was very surprised when I saw this. You quote in the book uh, psychologist John Gottman, who says that sixty nine percent of conflicts don't go away in relationships. So how do we handle that? And I and I think it's very tied into this distinction between goals and relationship goals. 
Yes, and also I I was taken by that also when I read that John Gottman, uh, and since then I've also seen uh, I think in his work that many people have long relationships and yet they have conflicts that they can't resolve and what to do about that. I thought that was amazing because most people think if there's enough if there's ongoing conflicts, it's going to lead to a breakup. Mm-hmm. But in fact, this was more, it doesn't lead to breakup. It depends on how it's handled. That if I have, say, Dan and I have a conflict <clears throat> that we can't resolve, and we realize, maybe because of meta, going meta to it, we realize that we're just, we've tried everything we know how. We've gotten counseling. We've done, you know. and Practice we just, our communication skills. <laughs> just still keep fighting about this one thing. That a successful relationship couple, which has a kind of long, long-term relationship that they don't break up. They find a way to, to walk around the conflict area. They both know it's there, but they stop trying to, they stop talking about it. They stop trying to solve it. They just know it's there. Maybe they'll make a joke about it. Not about the other person though, a joke about themselves or, you know, they can joke, but they they stop rather than keep trying, keep going there and go to have this repetitive cycle of things they say and what they do. And that's that's how they handle it. They don't last those couples. Right. So there's you're saying there's almost an ability to transcend the local concerns for a, for a bigger goal, which is us being together in a flourishing mm-hmm. relationship. Right. I think people also have a prioritization of certain issues. And, you know, as you hear people say, pick your battles. I mean, some conflicts, as Marita's saying, they're somewhat intractable and it's okay. We can still get along and have a good time together and be together and we don't have to solve that one. Right. There's something very hopeful about that, that, you know, at first it hits you. It's like, oh my God, there's 69% of things that we're not going to be able to fix. But at the same time, there's something hopeful that, look, despite that, people are able to have very happy and beautiful relationships. Yes. Right. It's not the whole story. <laughs> right. Right. And, and then, yeah, sorry, go on. No, well, 69% more or less. <laughs> more or less, yes. <laughs> Provision. Like, and there's something really interesting about the ability to live with imperfection, meaning with, okay, I'm not going to get everything that I want, which, which I think is important. Yes. Yeah, to have a recognition of um, mm, the proportion of things. Have provisional <laughs> expectations. Yes. Right. Right. Um, another another application, which I think is very important, and we touched on it as well, is is self talk, which is probably the more most consistent and pervasive uh, form of communication we engage in. Uh, so, can you tell us a little bit about? Speak a little bit about self talk and maybe on cognitive distortions, which we brought up before. Sure. So self-talk is just the ongoing interior thinking stream of thoughts that we have, which is totally normal. Everyone has them to different degrees. And some of those thoughts act like blinders for us. And that's what uh, cognitive distortions mean. They're just distortions about the, the influencing your perception. For example, overgeneralizing. I have 
one experience and then I generalize that out for everything. So it's like someone saying, uh, I was married once, it didn't work. I think marriage is doomed to failure. <laughs> it's like that's a big that's a big generalization for a pretty small sample. So we can go there and do that. That's a, a type of distortion. It's a lack of provisional thinking, really. Another is either or thinking. You know, you're either for me or you're against me. And there's no uh, grayscale on this. There's no middle ground. Another one is emotional reasoning. We covered that. If I'm if I'm feeling this way and thinking this, it must be true because I feel so strongly about it. That's another one. Another one is personalizing. You know, I know this. I know what you're saying is got to be about me <laughs> and and so you take it personally and it may actually a lot of things that people think don't have anything to do with us mm -hmm. just their conditioning so those are a few distortions and they affect our perception and they affect our interpersonal communication so it's helpful to look at interior communication as well as interpersonal communication mm -hmm. And to notice is or a simple way in is to notice to some of the thoughts I have, particularly like overgeneralizing and others catastrophizing, thinking that everything's going to go wrong in the future based on one small sample. Are they lacking? Often they're lacking in provisionality. Right, right. And, and lacking in evidence. Well, that's another thing too. <laughs> right, right. So there's, there's a lot of the distortions seem to be based off of binary and controlling thinking the need to be in control seeing everything as either or black or white and provisional provisional thinking opens us up to the flexibility the mm -hmm. flexibility of life and yes. also as you brought up critical thinking which is important right provisional provisional language really the more you use it the more it conditions um the user of it to recognize contingency in life you know the things go a certain way they could be different the next time mm -hmm. could be different five minutes from now right how, how do you recommend people to start the process of starting to become aware of the cognitive distortions well i'd say pick one yes right. pick one and just try to follow that one right make it clear what it is how you vocalize it to yourself internally and then watch for it, but don't try to get do all of them at once. We have a chapter that includes the cognitive distortions and has exercises for practicing. I mean, the other thing is is sometimes it's useful to just keep a journal or take notes on it, since these things are so intangible, fleeting, fleeting interior thinking. So just to notice in, in a certain situation where you get very activated emotionally, for example. Um, in a way that is not really working for you or others is what is the emotion that's occurring? And then what are the thoughts that are accompanying that emotion? Mm -hmm. And then, and you know, you collect them, you start to notice this and pretty soon you notice, oh, well, I do tend to do a lot of overgeneralizing in my thinking. Right. It's a top 10 tune. Yeah. And what if I didn't overgeneralize? What would it look like? Yeah. Right. Try it out. Right, right. So becoming, becoming what you, you talk about, which is, it's so easy for us to fall into these things, because it's like, we're a fish in water. 
our assumptions is it's one in, you know is we 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 swim in that so yes so habitual habitual yes 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 mm-hmm. so the 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 exercises you're bringing up is allowing you to step back and look yes at, look yes at, right to develop a little bit more of that observing awareness you know mindfulness people Meta. would say and metacognition just to start to to notice how is this communication working what's right. working well is am i is what's and if if something is working well what is it is it the back and forthness the taking turns in the conversation is it using more provisional language is it identifying positive intentions so you start you have a vocabulary for starting to notice what's working and and what isn't working as well right that's that, that that's a that's a very important point which is not only taking taking count of the negative like where communication falls apart but when you have a good conversation okay what did we do right over here that's right it's we we call it and something that's been around for a while an appreciative focus right right okay can you touch on the application of of parenting which i thought was very valuable hmm what directed towards what what problem or what's going on what what are you looking i'm not quite sure i think i think specifically bringing up you brought up in the book about um sort of leading leading by example and being and setting up healthy communication with children um i th- i think a lot of people start their uh, communication uh, journeys from their experiences at home <laughs> whether for good or for bad <laughs> yeah well i think just starting out listening to once your child becomes verbal even a little bit listening reflecting really helps the child find their voice mm-hmm. and uh that's something a lot of parents don't can't manage to do it's hard especially if your child comes home with a problem and you are immediately entangled with them uh and start to give advice because you want to solve the problem real quickly advice is fine if it's given once you have enough information i tell parents that i've worked with you know first reflect them most people and children included don't say what the problem is in the first time they say something mm-hmm. if you reflect them several times you probably get more of a sense of what's really going on and then give your advice after that after you've really gotten a sense of what's going on i think that's crucial Mm-hmm. So really, first making sure the the other person is completely heard and validated and understood before understood. jumping. Yeah. Yes. Understood is probably even more than validated. I would say it's it's just understanding that you under that you you're perceiving what they're talking about in a way that is actually accurate to how they're what they're wanting to say, because it's so easy just to assume. I understand what you're talking about. And you don't actually understand. You assume you understand. Yeah, when somebody says, yeah, I understand. Well, you have no idea what they understand. Right. Unless they reflect. Right, right, right. Then you get to hear what their understanding is. And correct them if it's not what you meant. Right. And it's interesting that you can have situations where sometimes you can even apply the a solution which technically works it takes care of the symptoms but you never actually dealt with the core problem so they'll come up again and again and again or it well, might be a solution that is your solution but not necessarily one that fits for the child right right yeah yeah so 
as Marita says, a lot of listening helps. Yes. But particularly, I think I, I agree with her when she's saying for for children, they are trying to discover their own voice, you know, to to say things in a way that is fits for them, that express that's expressive. So the listening aspect really draws that forth quite a bit. Of course, you're going to have the back and forth of talking and listening. Mm-hmm. But can be used a lot more listening, I think. Right. So and children more. also, one well, last point, I guess. Children also don't necessarily have tools to regulate their emotions. And so that's another place where the parent can help the child learn how to regulate emotions by regulating their own emotions yes you yes and and you 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 bring this uh, wonderful graph i believe in there about you, you just give a list of tons of emotions yeah <laughs> that's right <laughs> which is so valuable. a lot of there's a lot of words for emotions besides just feeling good or feeling bad right way more right when you can give children the, the the language to use to express themselves. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Then they develop a more nuanced sense of their own emotional life. Right. I think a lot of communication has moved online. We're doing this on Zoom, but everyone's texting, everyone's uh, communicating with each other di- digitally. So how would you apply these very important skills to the digital landscape? There are a lot of ways to apply the skills in, in terms of the things we've talked about, like identifying positive intentions or having good frames. You can do all that um, through digital communication, even asynchronous like email communication or texting. So, something that I think has developed where we have so many channels for communication, which needs to be attended to is that I think it's important to be discerning about which channel you're using for communication. You know, if you're carrying on a serious relationship conversation, it doesn't work that well through texting. Texting is sort of data exchanging a lot of the time, and you're missing out on a huge amount of nonverbal, you know, the voice tone, body posture, facial expressions, uh, all these, uh, the volume, the rate of delivery, these things get stripped out in some mediums. And I think people try to do too much through some of them where it's be more appropriate to have a face-to-face either Zoom meeting or in-person meeting. Right. So sort of being very judicious over which platforms to use for which conversations. Yeah. 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 I mean, as a not necessarily great example, sometimes I hear about someone sends a text message, which has an important thing that might've happened and the other person sends back a liked to it, which is not really sufficient. Generic. It's so generic as a response that, you know, it doesn't address it. So so that's an example where the medium can start to take over the communication and its limitations are there. What about breaking up in the text message? Right, or gaslighting people. There's so many things that happen with digital communication like yeah. that. Right. Right, yeah, the breaking up over text, that's a big one. <laughs> um, to put you on the spot, what's what's your favorite skill? Both of your favorite skill? Oh, listening. Listening. Yeah, I agree with that, listening. And close behind it is framing. Right. Yeah, framing is great. Framing is, I've just seen more and more, has so much influence. If you have a, 
an effective frame for a conversation. It just sets such a good tone. I'll, I'll put uh, provisionality using provisional language. I'll put that up there too. Actually, that happens to be my my favorite one as well. <laughs> Very spacious. Yes. Yes. It's a beautiful, can add a beautiful component. Mm-hmm. We we brought it up and we brought it up before. I wanted to maybe close with with the idea of the spiritual ideals of communication. We touched on self knowledge, impermanence, limitations of knowing. So maybe you could address address those foundations. Sure. So impermanence, provisionality, that's certainly one of the connections to uh, my sense of spirituality. Uh, another one is is just that although we can talk about a lot of topics, we can't quite exhaust <laughs> the way in which we keep talking about these things. So that points to me, uh, points out to me a, a limitation in knowing, you know, that knowing is an ongoing process that keeps refreshing itself and adding on. And that's part of the delight of it. But it's also the the recognition that this is what we know right now, as of today, it could change. So it's the provisionality, but it also, it, it's an acknowledgement that our knowing has a kind of limitation to it. And from a spiritual perspective, that opens up the idea that things are mysterious too. Mm-hmm. That there's a mystery to all of this that is revealed in our conversations with each other, right? We touch upon not being able to say certain things and and that's part of the mystery of our lives. So communication is a pointer to that for me. It's to the mysterious aspect, the beauty of mystery. Mm. So, so essentially through communication, we're able to touch on, we're sort of reminded of how little we know about reality and that is allows for mystery and i would add maybe an inducement of awe yes that's yes. right the awe the sense of um bewilderment can be the quite beauty good. of not knowing yeah the beauty of not knowing exactly yeah mm-hmm. and that is um i think for both of us an aspect of spirituality that communication has brought forth mm-hmm. almost seems like the and I, we touched on this before that the avenue of communication, meaning that the technical skills is actually a very, not only psychological, psychological, but spiritual process towards becoming a more full, open human being. And even aesthetic also. Mm. What do you mean by that? Well, there's a kind of aesthetic beauty in a well-crafted conversation. Yes. 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 Nice. Very true. It's not just words going words and being instrumental. There's a sense of yeah, the the whole way that it occurred, the flow, the sounds, the the language, the connectedness that occurs, the insights. It's an aesthetic dimension. No, for sure. So it's a beauty. Yes. 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 And beauty is, I think, for me, part of a spiritual perspective too. Yes. Yeah, hundred percent. One hundred percent. Yes. So, uh, Dan and Rita, we can uh, sit here and discuss for hours. Uh, <laughs> you know, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, so before before we close, can you tell us uh, where we can find you, your work, where we can get the book? Sure. You can go to letstalkmethod.com. 
And that's got information about us. You can join our mailing list for events that we do as, as well to stay informed about that. We have some articles up there as well. And we have the different places you can get the book. We have an ebook, a print book, and an audio book. And we list all the places you can get them. So that's letstalkmethod.com. Letstalkmethod.com. And you can communicate with us through the website too. You can, there's a contact us part of it. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here with me. Thank you so much, everyone who's going to be listening to this. I highly, highly, highly recommend the book. It's uh, for me, it was very, very positive. So thank you so much for your contributions. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for thank a you. delightful conversation too. Oh, it's it was fun. Really fun to talk with you. Thank you.